0: Welcome to Sightseeing Japan, the podcast where we explore the land of
1: colorful fish. I'm Paul Bresson. And I'm Jason Neeling. And today our topic is koi. Those pretty fishies that you are probably familiar with to some extent. Lovely description there. <laughs> They're pretty fishies. It's true. That's what they are. So koi, more specifically nishikigoi, are colored varieties of the amur carp. They are often kept for decorative purposes in outdoor koi ponds and in Japanese gardens around the world. So what's with the two names? I always knew them as koi. Yeah, I think that's what most people have heard. K-O-I. But the word koi just refers to a carp. Any carp. It doesn't need to be these pretty colorful carp. Koi can refer to just the carp that you would eat. But the decorative colorful ones are called nishikigoi because that nishiki part traditionally refers to beautiful or elegant things. So it said that the name Nishikigoi came from ai-nishiki which was the name for figured brocade, a very fancy decorative type of fabric. That was very
0: prized in uh, Japan in the Edo period, as yeah. far as I understand it.
1: Apparently I saw it called one of the four treasures of ancient Japan. Ooh. Yeah. So I saw that Nishikigoi could be translated to brocaded carp. Or even living jewel carp. Okay. So So it's just a different type
0: of carp or a specialty type of carp.
1: Yeah, they're not your normal everyday ones. It's all about those pretty colors. Okay. But I think in this episode, we're just going to call them koi just to keep it simple. Yeah. Because the only ones I've ever seen are the beautiful ones in gardens.
0: Mm -hmm. And I've just always referred to them as koi. Now I know better, but I might just keep calling them koi because that's what I've always called them.
1: That's fine. I think outside of Japan most people just call them koi unless maybe the hobbyists that are really into it you know use the nishikigoi term but
0: yeah if you actually own some in your pond or something like
1: that yeah so these nishikigoi are a symbol of Japanese culture and identity and a symbol of luck, prosperity and good fortune. There's even a holiday actually on Children's Day, which is on May 5th, they hang carp banners up to wish that their sons will be strong and healthy, just like carp. <laughs> All right. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Koi have become
0: such a symbol in Japan, like you mentioned. But even outside of Japan, koi seem to have become a symbol of Japan. You definitely. think of Japan when you see koi.
1: For sure. I've definitely seen people with like Japanese style tattoos. Koi is really popular in tattoos, I yeah.
0: think. Yeah. Is that what I should get next to koi? That'd be pretty cool.
1: It might be. Uh, So there are tons of different varieties of koi too. And they're distinguished by coloration, patterning, and scalation. How the scales are arranged. Some of the major colors are black, white, red, orange, yellow, blue, cream. There are so many colors. They can be pretty much any color. And they can be a combination of any of those colors too. Yeah. A lot of them are combinations, mm-hmm. which looks super
0: cool. Totally. Time for some history. All right, let's go back 35 million years to the beginning of carp. That's <laughs> pretty far. Maybe that's too far.
1: Maybe a little. How about the beginning of, I don't know, where should we start? I was going to start around the time when carp were more or less centralized to Asia and Central Europe. Seems like that's kind of where they started out.
0: Yeah, I didn't know that coming into this, because back when I used to fish, we'd catch carp around here. Yeah. But uh, I guess they were all introduced at some point, probably because they breed quickly and are hardy.
1: Yeah, they are very hardy. So they were first domesticated in East Asia, where they were used for food. Get some of that protein, that's important. And China was farming Amur carp as early as the 5th century BCE, if not earlier. I found that very interesting. I know people farm fish, but
0: I didn't know fish farming went back 2,500 years. Yeah. I mean, I know fishing did, but that's pretty cool. I thought that was pretty cool.
1: It is really amazing to look back at what people were doing a few thousand years ago. It's incredible. I saw just recently, there's a pair of pants that are 3,000 years old. I just saw those too. They're still intact. You can see the really intricate patterns stitched into them and stuff. It's amazing. They looked pretty good. Yeah. I couldn't make pants like that. No, no way. I couldn't. How do you even make fabric? Wouldn't even know where to begin. Yeah. You know, we always think of people back then as like primitive, but they had a lot of stuff going on. Oh yeah, definitely. Anyway, so China was farming the Amur carp. That's the one that eventually turned into Koi. And, like we said, carp are really hardy. They're good at adapting to different climates and water conditions. So they started spreading to other places around the world, including Japan. And eventually people started noticing natural color mutations in these carp. Like once in a while, one would pop up and like, oh, that one's not the color as all the other ones. That's weird. So even over a thousand years ago in China, they started breeding them specifically for those color mutations. And that selective breeding of another related species, the Prussian carp, is what led to the development of the goldfish, actually. Yeah. Goldfish are from China. Mm Mm-hmm. So the Amur carp, that's the koi species, they were first bred for color in Japan in the 1820s. Yeah. They'd been breeding them for food for quite a while before that. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, same idea. They just saw some interesting colors pop up, and they're like, oh, what can we do with this? Yep. So that breeding started in the town of Ojiya in Niigata Prefecture, and it started spreading. Like Koi quickly became popular in Japan. The rest of the world didn't really hear about all these color variations, though, until some koi from Niigata were exhibited at an exposition in Tokyo in 1914. Yeah, that helped spread it
0: throughout Japan and bring it to the whole world. Mm -hmm. Everyone's like, what are these cool fish?
1: Yeah. I also saw in 1914, the emperor was given one for the moat at the Imperial Palace. Ooh. So that's always a big deal when the emperor is getting into something. Yeah. While we're talking history here, I thought it was really
0: interesting that the koi's become such a symbol of Japan, but it's really more so recently. Because the first colored one wasn't even branded about, about 200 years ago. Mm -hmm. and only really became popular in the last hundred or so years. Yeah, it does seem relatively recent. Doesn't go back. as so many other things we've talked about, kimono and all this other stuff. Japanese gardens go back a long, long ways. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, we mentioned before about how a lot of this stuff that people associate with Japan is really, like it has its roots in the Edo period between the 1600s and 1800s. Yeah, maybe that's when you could say modern Japanese culture started to become what it is today, maybe. Yeah, a few changes along the way, but, you yep. So we are talking about that batch of koi in Niigata Prefecture. Apparently all the other varieties of koi were bred from that original batch. Yeah. They have a long lineage. You can trace all these, all these koi around the world back to these same few fish. It's pretty cool. Except actually, I saw the Ogone variety. They have kind of metallic scales Those are a more recent development that came from other fish, apparently.
0: I saw that. So there might be a
1: few here or there that didn't come from these original, but the vast majority, it seems. Yeah. Also, the butterfly koi is a more recent development. And those ones are pretty different from the normal koi because they have these really long flowing fins. They're pretty much a different species. It's a hybrid of a koi and an Asian carp. Okay. So it gets some
0: of the coloration, but it elongates the fins and kind of changes it in other ways too. Yeah. So it's some uh it's a wild hybrid.
1: They're pretty cool looking. I don't think I've ever seen one of those in Japan or well anywhere really in person. Yeah, some people don't consider it koi anymore or Nishikigoi anymore. Yeah, the purists might not really want to deal with those butterfly koi.
0: Yeah. And they kind of are and they kind of aren't. I mm-hmm. can see how you'd be on either side of that one.
1: Yeah. So these days, there are hobbyists around the world keeping koi. You can get them in a lot of aquarium shops all over the place. But if you want the very highest quality koi, you're going to have to go to a specialist dealer. And we're going to talk later about how they're bred, but it's pretty intense. There are also koi shows, like dog or cat shows. People bring their fish and they compete and show off their fish. Yeah, it's very serious. Uh Uh-huh. But Paul, did you know that koi are illegal in one state in the United States? Florida? Nope. All right. Uh, so I'm out of guesses. <laughs> That's it? Just one? <laughs> it's always Florida, right? There are a few states that stick out here and there. Okay. but Is there a reason it's banned in this state? Nothing specific I could find. And this isn't one of the states that usually sticks out as a weird state. Okay. It's Maine. Maine, huh? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. All other states allow them. And I saw in 2014, there was actually a woman in Maine who tried to get koi legalized. Like she had some and she's like, I should be able to keep my fish. And she fought it all the way to the state Supreme Court, but she lost and they took her koi away. Wow. Interesting. Interesting. You know, actually, now that I think of it, I bet the reason is because Maine is a big seafood producer. Yeah. And... Since carp are an invasive species, they probably don't want them messing up all the waterways around there or something. I
0: guess. Koi are freshwater fish, though, so they wouldn't be in the ocean, which is, I think, where Maine would be doing most of their fishing. Yeah. But I can see how they want to keep their lakes nice and their rivers nice. I'm just speculating. Yep. Anyone from Maine listening, let us know. Yeah.
1: What's up with that? (laughs) So let's talk about the many, 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 many different varieties of koi. Yeah. I saw around 200 varieties as a number. Mm Mm-hmm. Saw that number too.
0: But it might be a little iffy about exactly what's a variety and how they all blend together is maybe a little fuzzy sometimes.
1: Yeah. And the way that these varieties are distinguished can get super technical.
0: Yeah. They're looking at
1: coloration, patterning. Scalation, which I didn't know was a word. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I found a koi glossary of terms online. Okay. It was like 20 pages long. Oh my all goodness. All these different words. <laughs> they have a name for all these different colors, all these different patterns, shapes of patterns, parts of the fish, the quality of the skin, the size of the fish. There's a specific term for a koi with red lips. Like it gets super, super specific. Interesting. Yeah, things that, you know, only a koi expert, a koi connoisseur would notice, probably. Yeah. And I also found a huge list of names of all these different varieties that all have different characteristics, but I mean, there are just way too many to talk about all of them here. Yeah. But I do want to mention a category called gosanke, which refers to the big three most famous, most popular varieties. Yeah, I'd never heard that term before, so I looked it up and I thought it was kind
0: of cool. You can have a gosanke of anything. It just means like the big three? Yeah. Mm. You know, if you said gosanke of countries, population, you would take the top three be China, India, US, I think.
1: Sure. That's cool. I didn't realize that. Yeah, I didn't either. So they've got that for, for a lot of things. Nice. So, what are the big three? Let's go through them. The first one I want to talk about is called Kohaku. These fish are white-skinned with large red markings on top. And this is the very first ornamental variety of koi bred in Japan. Yeah, very popular one. If
0: you see a picture of a koi, you very likely might see a white koi with red markings on top. Definitely. The name means red and white, which makes sense, right? It does make sense, yes. The next one is Taisho Sanshoku. Uh, Which is very similar to the kohaku, except for the addition of black markings as well. Yep. So it's going to be a white fish with red markings on top and then some black mixed in as well.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. The black markings are called sumi. And this type was first shown in that 1914 exhibition we mentioned in the history section. And Paul, do you know why it's called Taisho sanshoku?
0: It's named that because the emperor in Japan at the time was called the Taisho Emperor. And his reign is called the Taisho period.
1: Yep. So the third big one is Showa Sanshoku. It has a black background with red and white markings on top. So it looks a lot like the Taisho one, just more black, basically. And this one was first exhibited in 1927 during the reign of the Showa emperor. So that's where that name comes from. Yeah. Japanese
0: history gets less confusing... If the emperors live long lives. (laughs) Otherwise, the periods are going to change
1: so fast. Yeah. They name each period after the emperor who reigned. Yep. So these big three, you may have noticed, they're only using three colors, white, red, and black. Those are pretty much the most common colors you'll see probably. But there are a bunch of other colors and combinations of colors, as we mentioned. Yeah. I think the Ogone variety looks super cool. They're known as the Ghost koi. Yeah, they're a metallic colored koi of a single color. Yeah, so you can actually find fish that look like they're made of gold. Like they're shiny and gold colored. It's really cool. Yep, gold, platinum,
0: orange, and sometimes cream, which is very rare. Mm. A cream metallic solo colored fish. Yeah. I've definitely seen some of these, like some all gold ones or all really
1: bright orange ones. They yeah. look
0: really impressive. I like, I like the style.
1: Yeah, totally. I saw that there are some pearl scales too. Like they actually look just like the surface of a pearl. Oh, wow. Those are pretty cool. So
0: they got another name for variety. I don't even know if that's the best way to say it. Called Kawarimono. Which is kind of like a catch-all for any koi that's not put into one of the main categories. So if you're competing at a show and your fish doesn't fit one of the three or four whatever main categories they're doing, you just put it in this one and it can compete as like an other
1: fish. Okay. So each of these types of koi can actually represent a different thing too. I thought this was kind of fun. You got those gold koi. Those symbolize wealth and prosperity, which makes a lot of sense. The kohaku, the red and white can signify career success or love and compassion okay and there's one called ochiba which is kind of a blue or brown mixed with a rust sort of color and those represent the transition and changing of the seasons kind of like autumn leaf colors yeah i suppose that's cool mhm but no matter what variety what color all these fish are the same species as long as we're not talking about the, you know, the butterfly, koi. Right. All the koi that like are the same shape and look the same. They're just different colors, same species. They're just considered different subspecies. Yeah. They can all interbreed and create viable offspring. Yep. But if they do breed freely without that careful selective breeding for the colors, within just a few generations, they're just going to be plain old carp again. You're going to lose all those special colors. Yep. So sometimes I think people think of koi as just big goldfish. I think I'd probably heard that before. Yeah, not true. Yeah, not quite the same thing. They're different species. Goldfish, as I mentioned, were developed in China from the Prussian carp, but koi were developed from the Amur carp in Japan. And the easiest way to tell them apart is that koi have whiskers, and goldfish do not. Also, koi can grow up to over three feet long, But goldfish, they max out at around one foot long. Fun fact, actually, Paul, did you know that the biggest koi ever recorded was four feet long and 91 pounds? That's a big boy. It sure is. (laughs) So let's talk about how you take care of koi. You pet him on the head and say, good fishy. Yep, absolutely. That's pretty much all you got to do. So if you've got a koi pond in a warmer
0: weather area, it has to be about a meter and a half deep. But if you're in a cold area, the water has to be quite a bit deeper, maybe even twice as deep.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I saw that koi ponds in areas with harsh winters are normally at least five feet deep because the deeper the water, the more heat it's going to retain in winter, you know, the more water there is for the koi to survive in down at the bottom. Yep. Yep. And like we said, koi are pretty hardy. They can survive in a lot of different climates, but they do best between 59 and 77 degrees Fahrenheit, 15 to 25 Celsius. And so in the winter, if you're in one of these harsh winter places, the koi basically just go dormant. They don't eat anything. They're just kind of hanging out at the bottom waiting for things to warm up.
0: Yeah. Don't get their appetite
1: back until it warms up in the springtime. Mm-hmm. So if you're taking care of these koi, you also want to make sure that they don't get eaten because there are a lot of things that like to eat fish.
0: Yeah, the bright color of the koi in the relatively shallow pond makes them very obvious to predators.
1: Yeah. So there's some actions you can take to keep them safe. You want the water to be deep enough that big birds like herons cannot stand there and just go fish hunting. Yep. Uh, you could put... Uh, Trees
0: overhead to block the view from birds. Yeah, like birds of
1: prey that want
0: to swoop down and grab them. If necessary, you can even put uh,
1: nets or wires above the surface of the water to protect against that too. Mm -hmm. I saw that those trees also help because they provide shade for the koi because koi can actually get sunburns. I believe it. Yeah. Uh, And if you have any like rocks overhanging the water or anything, you want to make sure those are high enough that... Mammals can't get to the fish, too. Like foxes, badgers. If you have a house cat, that might be interested. Yeah, you kind of want a steep embankment, I think, around the edges too, so they
0: can't just stand right there and swoop koi out. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, you'll come back and like
1: all ten year koi are just gone. That would be a bummer. Yep. And you also want to pay attention to the water quality for your fish. Very important. Yep. You'll probably need a pump and filtration system to keep the water clean. And you got to keep an eye on the oxygen levels and the pH. Yep. So, you know, before we researched this, I kind of just thought, oh, you just make a make a little man-made pond in your yard and throw some koi in there. And there you go. You got a koi pond. But sounds like a ton of work, man.
0: Yeah. The ponds are big, but not that big compared to how big the fish are. Mm -hmm. It's almost like having a big aquarium, but it's outside, which makes it even harder to control everything. Yeah. Yeah. So what do koi eat? Paul. A lot of stuff. <laughs> they are omnivorous. They eat watermelon. I thought that was interesting. <laughs>
1: Is that their main watermelon <laughs> the main part of their
0: diet? Peas and lettuce I saw specifically mentioned. Yeah. I thought it was interesting to note that koi are bottom feeders, so they're kind of designed to like eat from the bottom. So mm-hmm. they throw in some food that sinks, but they also throw in some food that floats. So the koi have to come up to the surface to eat it so you can look at them and inspect them and make sure they're healthy Mm -hmm. and doing all right.
1: I also saw like it, it kind of depends on the fish. Some fish might prefer to eat on the bottom. Some might prefer on top. So you can get food depending on like the personality of your individual fish. That's cool. Yeah. And so in the wild, normal carp, just eat like insects, algae, plants. Maybe other small fish. But, I mean, they'll pretty much eat anything you put in front of them. Like you said, you got, what did you say, watermelon, peas, lettuce. I saw even bananas and oranges, broccoli and spinach. Like Everybody likes bananas. Everybody? Everything and everybody. Do dogs like bananas? Yeah, dogs love bananas, dude. I don't remember if I ever tried giving my cats bananas. I don't know if they would be interested. Yeah, maybe carnivores don't like bananas as much. Yeah,
0: I don't know if cats are completely carnivore, but don't see them as fruit eaters.
1: Yeah, I don't think I remember my cats ever caring at all about fruits or vegetables, for that matter. Yeah. So, you know, funny enough, I feel like a lot of people like to feed fish bread, right? I imagine, like, somebody standing at a bridge and tearing off little pieces of bread, throwing them down to the fish.
0: And birds and everything, and let me guess, it's not a good thing to feed them.
1: Yeah, bread is not not great koi. Just empty carbs, right? Exactly. Your fish need a balanced diet. You're going to want about 40% protein and less than 10% carbs. So too much bread, no good. And I saw you can also get food actually that can enhance their color. Really? Yeah. What's that? Like, it sounds like a scam, right? Like, oh, I'll make your fish brighter. Buy this food from me. Yeah. But, you know, there are a lot of different animals where depending on what they eat, it can kind of change their color, right? Like flamingos, aren't they pink because of the shrimp that they eat? Uh, I hadn't heard that. I think I heard that. I don't know. But for the carp, for example, red algae can boost the red color in their scales. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I love, I love this, Paul. Did you know koi can recognize the people feeding them? Yep. They yep. Can. They see the feeder come along and they all come to the surface, hang around because they know they're about to get fed. Mm-hmm. You can even train them to eat from your hand. And when I first heard that, I imagined like you get some fish food in your hand, put it in the water, and you know, they kind of swim up and take it out of your hand. But I actually saw a video of people picking the fish up out of the water and hand feeding them that way. Like you can actually cuddle with your carp. That seems a little odd, but very interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was impressed at like how, how much of a connection there can be between people and their fish. You know, these aren't just like the kinds of fish that you look at through the glass in your aquarium and you just tap on the glass and you're like, Oh, good fishy. These ones, you can actually get to know them and like interact with them. Not to say that that never happens with people keeping fish in aquariums, but you know what I mean? Like this is one of the few fish where you can actually pick it up and actually pet your fish. <laughs> good fishy. Yeah. They're used to being handled because they
0: pick them up all the time to inspect them. Starting from when they're very young.
1: Yeah. I mean, you got to train them to be used to that. So how long are your koi going to live for? Well, I saw that the average lifespan is around 40 to 50 years. That's pretty good. Yeah. But there have actually been reports of them living 100 to even 200 years. Okay. Which just seems crazy. That does seem crazy. There's a famous koi that died in 1974 named Hanako. She'd been owned by several people. And after she died, they studied the growth rings on her scales. Apparently fish have growth rings like trees. Okay. They determined that she was 226 years old when she died. That's crazy. Yeah.
0: Like that's hard to believe. Yeah. I've only ever heard of lobsters and turtles being that old. Yeah. Maybe whales too. Certain whales. Mm. Everything lives in the water. Huh? Interesting.
1: Yeah, what is it about the water that makes things live so long? I don't know. Maybe it's because they don't have gravity, pushing them down into the earth all the time. So you say they live around 45 years on average? Something like that? Something like that,
0: yeah. Okay, so I should buy some koi in the next couple years, and we'll probably die at about the same time. I could own them for the rest of my life.
1: Sure. (laughs) Okay, good to know. (laughs) Yep. And you know, that lifespan is assuming that they don't get sick and die of something. Right, right. Because there are diseases that koi can suffer from. They do resist a lot of the parasites that affect more sensitive fish, but one of the biggest health concerns is KHV, which stands for the koi herpes virus. Well, that sounds awful. Yeah. I mean, I've never heard of a kind of herpes that didn't sound awful. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, and it's uh,
0: if you get that in your koi pond, it's it's over, it seems. Yeah, there's no known treatment for it. Like, you're gonna have to let all your koi die and disinfect your pond and start over again.
1: Yeah, but there is a vaccine actually. Did you see that? I saw that, and it seemed to be only in Israel. Yeah, they developed it in Israel, and I, uh, I guess nobody else has wanted to use it. But apparently it has like a 90% success rate, so I don't know why it hasn't spread around more.
0: Yeah, that's a high enough success rate for the herd immunity to kind of kick in and Mm -hmm. it just not really be a thing that goes around anymore. Yeah. That was interesting. Like someone took the time and effort and resources to develop a vaccine for a fish illness. People really love these fish. I didn't know that was a thing until I researched this. Yeah, ditto. That's interesting.
1: You want to talk about breeding now? It's my favorite topic. (laughs) So like most fish, koi reproduce through spawning. The female lays a bunch of eggs, and then one or more males comes along and is like, hey, eggs, let me fertilize those babies. Yep. They can produce thousands of offspring from a single spawning. Mm -hmm. And since breeders of koi are actually looking for those specific colors and patterns, they're going to carefully choose the parents they want to breed. And I saw that some breeders think that natural spawning is best, but some breeders will actually take things into their own hands. Literally. Oh, goodness. (laughs) It's okay, Paul. I won't get too graphic here. Well, it's a little graphic. They drug the fish. (laughs) Oh, come on. Yeah. They put them in water with like a sedative. And then, you know, once the fish is kind of knocked out, they'll extract the sperm and eggs from the male. And female. Extract. Yeah, with like a syringe. Okay. You okay? You still with me? I'm with you. I don't, I don't like it. Fish can, Fish fun. cannot consent. Anyways. Okay, So, so then they mix the sperm and the eggs. And so the female is going to produce around 500,000 eggs per spawn, which is just insane. It's a lot. But not all of those are going to hatch. I saw that 60% is a good, good ratio. That's still a ton of fish hatching. Yeah. Still more than a quarter of a million. <laughs> wow. So three days after conception, the baby fishies, known as Fry, are going to start hatching. And about 10 days after hatching, you got a few hundred thousand little tiny Fry, about two millimeters long. That's itty bitty. Yep, And the large majority of these are not going to be acceptable as Nishikigoi, because the breeders are looking for those specific, the perfect color combinations, the perfect patterns. And breeders are such experts at selecting these perfect fish that they start selecting them when they're this tiny, two millimeters long. And Apparently they're closely guarded trade techniques that they use yeah. to, to pick out these fish.
0: Yeah, even the best champion-grade koi are going to produce offspring that mostly get culled. Mm-hmm. That's the part of it that I don't really like as a vegan. For every koi you get that grows up, thousands of them were just killed and tossed aside because they didn't look pretty enough.
1: Well, the babies that are culled are either destroyed, which is is what you're talking about. is not great, but a lot of them they might feed to other fish too, which is basically what would happen in the wild anyway. How do you feel about that?
0: I don't like the fact that we're doing it and we're, we're choosing who lives and who doesn't.
1: Okay. Well, so they're, they're going to do this first calling. They're going to narrow it down to maybe about 100,000 fish. But that's only the first selection stage. There's going to be another selection about 40 days after hatching. And the fish that are culled when they're older, between 3 and 6 inches long, actually probably won't be destroyed. They might be sold as lower-grade, pond-quality koi instead of champion-grade. Yeah, those are the ones you might buy to fill up your backyard koi pot. Yep. So then at three months after hatching, the number may have been further whittled down to only about 3,000 fish. And, I mean, since they're only looking for the absolute best, out of this whole spawn, those original 500,000 eggs, you might only end up with a handful of fish that you're actually going to choose as like, these are good koi, (laughs) you know? Yeah. These are the ones I'm going to bring to the championship and try to win something with. Mm Mm-hmm. And the very best ones can be worth tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. If you go win a big competition, I bet you can auction
0: it off for a lot.
1: Yeah. But it's amazing what tiny things can lower the value of a fish. I saw that if those little whiskers, I mentioned those whiskers, if they're asymmetrical, if one is longer than the other, oh, you can knock off a huge chunk of that price. Too ugly. Next. (laughs) Yeah. Or if a single scale is missing. No good. Gross. Yep. Next. I need perfection in my fish. They're propagating unrealistic beauty standards for these fish, right, Paul? Yeah, they are.
0: These fish should feel good about their bodies, no matter what color they are.
1: Yeah. Except if their scales aren't in perfect rows, that's, I mean, that's just unacceptable. Yeah. Should call them. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) So I mentioned earlier that carp are considered an invasive species in a lot of different places. Koi have been released into the wild, either intentionally or accidentally, in every continent in the world except Antarctica. And you couldn't really do it in Antarctica. There's no lakes in Antarctica. Yeah. So everywhere possible, we've done it. Yep. And they are invasive pests because they cloud up the water. They're always stirring up sediment since they feed off, you know, the bottom. So all that sediment, when it clouds the water, it kills the plants because they're not getting enough light. It can make the water undrinkable, even for animals. Makes the water look gross. The most important thing, of course. Yeah, it doesn't look as nice. But I saw that in some situations, they can actually be helpful too. In North America, they use carp in water hazards at golf courses to keep waterborne insect larvae under control. Have you ever seen that, Paul? You're a golfer. I haven't. I saw that
0: in my research. I've never seen that at a golf course. Yeah. Although I'm not generally looking for fish in the ponds. I'm usually looking for my golf ball. Yeah. But maybe I'm just not going to the nice enough courses. It seems like they would need to be pretty big water hazards to have these big carp. Right. If they, It'd have to be a big pond if they weren't checking the pH and taking care of all that stuff. It'd have yeah. to be a big pond that could kind of regulate itself.
1: Yeah. Hey, I'm cool with anything that gets rid of mosquitoes, you know? Yeah. Koi are our
0: friends. Mm-hmm. They eat the mosquitoes. Thank you, Koi. Yep. Yeah. So if you want to see koi or learn more about koi, you can go to Ojia, the town where they first started breeding Hmm. these colorful koi. They still have shows and stuff there, right? They do. And they've got a place called Nishikigoi no Sato, which is kind of like a museum, but also an aquarium, but also a Japanese garden. Cool. So you go in, and there's this huge garden with a bunch of water and koi just swimming around everywhere. And then they've got a big main building that's got a main pool inside that's got about 30 fully grown koi fish swimming around in it. So you can just kind of enjoy everything there. Nice. I've heard it's a little easier to like go do that than it is to try to go to an actual koi farm because they're not really set up to like see much. Yeah. Um, also every year there's the all Japan Koi show. Uh, and about 4,000 fish get entered into the show every year. Cool. Where is that held? I think it's in Tokyo and the Imperial family visits Ooh. every year, apparently. So that's a huge deal.
1: Yeah. Sounds like it.
0: Where else can you see Koi Jason?
1: They're everywhere. Really? I don't think I've done a single trip to Japan where I didn't see just a bunch of Koi. If you go to any Japanese garden, basically, they almost always incorporate water into a Japanese garden. And if there's water, there's almost always going to be koi. Yep. If you're just seeing
0: temples and shrines, you're going to see a koi pond somewhere.
1: Yeah. There was a Japanese garden that I visited in Okinawa that had the most koi I'd ever seen in my life. Really? Yeah. I mean, there were dozens and dozens. That warm water down there. Yeah. they probably thrive. And this was one of the places, I've seen a few places that will actually let you feed the koi. Like they have a little little machine, you put in a hundred yen coin and get a little box of fish food. Yeah. And I mean, there were so many fish in this thing. They were, the water looked like it was boiling because all these fish are just jumping, jumping. on top of each yeah. other. Like it was
0: insane. <laughs> they maybe let you feed them there because there's so many that they don't get overfed by people throwing food all day. Yeah, yeah. If there's only a few koi in a pond, they they could easily like overfeed if everyone keeps feeding them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a lot more common to just see like three or five fish maybe. Probably not four because that's an unlucky number, but <laughs> yeah, I feel like three or five is a common number to see in a pond somewhere. Yeah. I'd agree. All right. Anything else, Paul? Anything about fish? I think that covers koi. All right. Hope you enjoyed learning about these beautiful fishies. They're pretty awesome. If you want to see some pictures, I think I have some pictures of koi I can put up on Instagram. We are SJP Podcast. Um, You can find our website at sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. You can send us an email to feedback at sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. Paul, what are we talking about next time? On the next episode, we're going to get a little spicy.
0: And we're going to talk about wasabi. Mm, Delicious.
1: Love that stuff.
0: Me too. Kind of makes me want sushi now. I'm thinking about wasabi and all the things I put it on.
1: With the quarantine, it's been so long since I had sushi. Yeah. Is that sushi place open yet? I'm sure they are for takeout. Ooh, dude. get some. Next week. Sushi. Yeah. All right. All right. Thanks for listening. See you next time.